Well, good morning. It is good to see you all and to be back with you all. Uh, last, uh, two weeks ago, actually, right after the morning service, I boarded an airplane and flew to Ecuador uh, to be the keynote speaker there in Ecuador. And by the way, guys, I don't have control of the presentation, so I'm just going to click out of that. Uh, so, uh, boarded a plane, arrived in Guayaquil, Ecuador, after an all-night flight to Lima, Peru, and then up to Guayaquil. And then two hours after landing, I was speaking as the keynote speaker in the BMW field conference for all of Spanish-speaking Latin America. And it was a blessing to be there. Thank you for those who have prayed for me. I needed it. Uh, arrived two hours after an all-night flight. Two hours later, you're preaching with an interpreter. Uh, that first night probably wasn't my best message, I'm just saying. Uh, but we praise the Lord for those who are there, the missionaries I'm going to introduce just in just a moment. I'm going to have them uh, play a, a little video, about three minutes long or so, of the missionaries who are in the Latin American field who are uh, gathered together at the BMW conference, field conference. And some of them you may recognize or you may know from various times in the past. We don't support, as a church, we don't support any of the ones who are there, but we certainly prayed for them this past week, and so thank you for that. But I wanted you to hear them because they're singing, Behold Our God. We're going, not by my design, as I look through the plan, and Mike Lee and uh, those on his team helped plan for the song service, and I got back and I thought, I'm going to play this video, and then I noticed, Behold Our God, we're going to sing uh, in just a little bit. Uh, but they're singing it in Spanish. And I tell you, one of the missionaries came to me, in fact, it was my interpreter, and he's related to one of the missionaries we support. We support the Willoughbys, uh, Dan in Germany, and we support them, and we praise the Lord for their work there. His brother, Tim, was my interpreter. Uh, he is from Uruguay, and uh, he was such a blessing for me throughout the week. I was speaking to him, and he said, you know, I believe that when we get to heaven, we will speak to God in Spanish. <laughs> and he goes, it's the one language that truly communicates the emotion of the character of God. And so I had uh, the group of about uh, 55 or so adults. There was about 70 of us total, 55 missionaries. We had some BMW board members there and uh, all of that assembled. And the kids, of course, there's about 70 or 80 of us there, but 55 or so are in the video that you're about to see. And in that, we had just sang, before I preached, we had sung, Behold Our God. And then I preached and the area director, Kevin Mayfield, who's leading on the guitar, stands up and says, I think the only song that we have that would be appropriate for us is to sing Behold Our God in Spanish. I want you to hear as this mission field, this is right after I have preached uh, the second message, this is Tuesday night, uh, about two weeks ago now, as they sing together, I want you to hear the conviction in their voices, and I want you to see the passion in their enthusiasm for serving the Lord. Guys, if you'll play that video.
as I look through the room of those missionaries, very few of them have not been threatened of their life. I'm going to share a story later on this morning and part of the message that will remind us of the sacrifice that some of our missionaries take, but you and I are called to make as well. And so as we dig in, I invite you to turn. This is a, an appropriate place for us to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it fits well with where we are headed in the book of 1 Thessalonians. As we turn here, we want to recognize that these are believers who have very little. In fact, they have been sent from here. Many of them have been sent from here at least two generations back. Some of them you see kids who are now taking on the roles. There should be, by the way, if we were to be honest, there should be hundreds of missionaries in that room. But there's less than 50. There's a handful of BMW board members But the needs in Latin America are tremendous. Many of these are second and third generation missionaries who have lived there, grown up there, served there, dedicated their lives to a culture that is not their own. They are truly those who are walking to please God. We see it in their voices. We can hear it rather in their voices. We could see it in their examples and their testimonies. And it reminds us of our idea this morning where we understand that success in the Christian life is not found in numbers. It's not found in uh, the looks or the appearances or the facades. The success in the Christian life is found in faithful obedience to the commands of Christ. I have served missionaries around the world. And I have encountered very few that had the same kind of humility as this group did. And so that is why they are a fitting beginning for us as we understand what it means to walk with God. And we begin in verse 1 of chapter 4. And I'm going to read us verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. And the scripture says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for these saints that are now dispersed. They're back in their countries from Argentina to Uruguay to Colombia, Ecuador, Bolivia, Mexico and Honduras. Lord, we praise you for the ministries that are being done through their lives, through their testimony. I praise you for those who have recently come to faith, even the one in the image that was just shown who has just recently come to you. We praise you for the great message of the gospel being spread to, a country, to countries, to a part of our world that has religion but doesn't know you as Savior. Lord, I pray that as we look to the examples of these missionaries that we would be challenged in our own lives to walk more obediently with you, to be found more faithful, to cast aside the selfish ambitions of our empty pursuits, and to follow fully and obediently your commands. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for the time we can spend in your word, and I pray that we would each be challenged and edified, equipped by your word, that as we would leave here in the early afternoon hours, we would have opportunities to present you, to glorify you. So Lord, I pray that you would change our lives by your word, that your name would be glorified in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We begin this morning in verse 1 with Paul's brotherly appeal. And Paul is beginning to speak to some very critical and important issues, including as he begins to change the subject for us. Notice as he says in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally, then, brothers. This is a brotherly appeal as he's changing subjects for us. The apostle has been proclaiming his thanksgiving, his glorifying of the Lord for the life and the faith of those in Thessalonica. He praises the Lord for their continued endurance and their walking in the things of the Lord. But scattered throughout those prayers have been a number of issues that Paul has brought up. And now he's going to bring them all together 
And he's going to address them as he prepares to close the book. And so this is the second half, as Paul now adds the theology and the practicality of his prayers. We have a lot to learn here. The word finally could be translated, as for the rest of my instructions to you. In other words, you've pressed on, you've endured, now there's more. I want to tell you more. I want to proclaim more to you. From the last few chapters, Paul's love for the church is undeniable. We can't doubt it in any way. His display of his concern for them is brought forth and laid bare as he opens up his own prayer life, reflecting what he is considering of the Thessalonian believers. His prayers for their continued resistance against the wanderings that happen as they would distance themselves from the Lord. He's encouraged because they have not done that. And now Paul pushes forward. It's not enough. Believer, it's not enough. For the believers in Thessalonica or for the believers at Byron Center. It's not enough to be resistant to the wanderings. And isn't that hard enough? The pressures of our world today that constantly tug at every single one of our fleshly strings. Isn't it hard enough just to resist? Paul says it's not enough. We live in a world where we almost immortalize, we put upon a pedestal those who we say are resisting. They're the example. Paul says they're not the example. They've got work to do. That's what he says of the Thessalonians. You have done well, but press on. Press on. When trials come, it's also very easy to divide. And Paul will see that. He's in Corinth as he's writing the letter to the Thessalonians, and he's mindful of the divisions that exist in Corinth. And you know them well. Some said they were of Paul. Some said they were of Apollo. Some said they were of Cephas. Some said they were of Jesus. The, the more holy ones said they're of Jesus. You could see the arguments. Well, I, I'm on this side, and they sit right here. And I'm on this side, and they sit right there. And, and some sit right here. And you could see the divisions that existed even as you walked into the fellowship. Paul is writing in that context as he's writing back to the Thessalonian believers. And he's reminding them and encouraging them of the divisions that exist. And so the term brotherly is used for its eighth time so far in the book, but it will be used in the last two chapters 11 more times. Paul is making a point. He's revealing the divisions that exist. It's not just enough to resist the temptations to wander from the Lord. It's necessary for believers to unite together in a brotherly love with brotherly kind of convictions. We must be those who encourage one another towards godliness. We must be those who refuse to accept resistance as enough in our life and in the lives of others. The brotherly bond becomes the starting point of this significant shift in the letter. Paul's greatest concern in writing to the church in Thessalonica is that they would not stagnate and would not wander but continually press forward. This is the only time, if we look into verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge. Some of your translations may say urge and exhort. This is the only time that Paul uses this combination in this epistle or in the second letter to the Thessalonians. They would be those who are asked and urged. Paul ties the brotherly to the asking. There is a specific way, and we are offended. If we're to be honest, we're offended when another believer comes up to us and says, I've noticed this in your life. You don't know me. And I think that's the exact problem that Paul is addressing. There ought to be a community within the body of Christ that can challenge us, not in an arrogance, not in the self-absorption of our own aggrandizement, but rather in the loving care to say, I'm praying for you, I'm gently urging you as a sibling in the body of Christ to follow Christ. It's not to point out your faults, 
It ought not to be that. But rather it must be that which is, is used to say godliness is over here. Don't wander down this road. Don't wander this direction. That is, that is Paul's ask, or as some of your translations say, urge. Paul is gently exhorting through the brotherly phileo kind of love to say, stop wandering away from the things of God. Beloved, you need people within the body of Christ who in that brotherly kind of way will say, stop wandering away from the things of God. We talk about accountability partners when it comes to issues like pornography or alcoholism or those kinds of things. Let us also have accountability partners who can look straight into your eyes and say, you are not walking with God in this way. That's what Paul is doing for the Thessalonian believers. Saying you must follow the things of the Lord. And in this case, as we will see as we move through the text, it's not as if they weren't walking with the Lord. But they weren't walking far enough. So they were obedient to the things of Christ, but they had to press on. And so Paul says, I'm pressing you on. I'm pressing you to more godliness. Be more godly. I hope that you as an individual have friends within the body of Christ that push you to a deeper sense of godliness. Not in the sense of feeling, but in the reality of godliness. That you have those in your life who are those who are diligent to say, draw me near to the things of God. That's what Paul is doing. He says, I'm asking you, The brotherly convictions that come when you know that you're going to meet that person on a Sunday morning and you know that there have been issues throughout the week and there's that conviction that comes from knowing that they're going to hold you accountable and you praise God for them holding you accountable. And that conviction that drives you at that moment. I received a text message last night from one whom I'm an accountability partner from or for. And he had indicated some opportunities that were present, and so I could say, before you go there, don't go there, and pray for him, lead him into the things of the word of God. Those are essentials. That is what it means to be this kind of brotherly conviction. It is a fearful reality when the church becomes so politically correct that we are no longer concerned about being biblically correct. And I believe that the church, and fear of avoidance, or fear of rather offense, and then because of that avoidance has become our sin. Where we are those who have pressed and we've gotten hurt because we've pressed, and so we become politically correct. Well, they look good on Sunday. I guess they're okay. Paul cuts through that, avoiding the political correctness, to look at another believer and gently but firmly tell them to press on to maturity. And that is hard. That is hard. And it it takes great introspection of our own heart, especially when the other believer has grown up in the church. Say, well, maybe you've been a believer a shorter time than they. But let us be those who are gentle, brotherly, not in the kind of sibling rivalry kind of way, but in that true gentleness of a brother saying, come alongside. Let us walk towards godliness together. Paul says, he continues on, and he says, not only are we to be those who come with a brotherly appeal, but now he says you are to be, with great instruction, you are to be those abounding in obedience. And he deals with the second half of what he started. He says, "I'm, I'm asking and I'm exhorting. And I think exhorting is a good word for that second one. I'm asking and I'm exhorting. I'm asking in brotherly love, but in spiritual authority, I'm exhorting you to obey the things of the Lord. In Paul's spiritual authority. The second part of Paul's appeal is this exhortation. And instead of the brotherly appeal, which he has already presented, he is now instructing from the side of spiritual authority. As an apostle, as one with spiritual authority. There are times, and this is especially true in our day and age, There are times when we reject spiritual authority because we have deceived ourselves into believing that somehow we are above or immune from the spiritual instruction that is given to us through the Word of God, or maybe even through the pulpit or through the teaching ministries of the church. So Paul starts with a brotherly appeal, and then he moves to spiritual instruction to help the original readers and today's readers 
stop and reflect on what Paul is communicating. Paul returns to the instruction that had been given to this young church. Notice what he says again in verse 1. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and we exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. There are countless manuals to Christian living. In fact, it is one of the largest sections if you were to walk into a bookstore, even such as Barnes & Noble, where you would walk to the Christian section, you're probably not going to find very many reference works there, but you'll find all kinds of, of how to live the Christian life. Most of those, by the way, are flat-out heresy. You walk into a Christian bookstore, and while they'll have the reference section, the, the self-help section, the how-to section, is quite large. Paul does something quite astounding. He sums up the Christian obedience, success in the Christian life, by saying, do what the Lord instructed you to do. Do what the Lord instructed you to do. You don't need countless manuals on self-help. You don't need countless manuals on church planting. You don't need countless manuals on spiritual growth. Paul calls these readers back to obedience to the things that they had heard from Paul, which are from the Lord. Not some latest and greatest way to achieve man's view of success. Let us remove what man views as success in the Christian journey because man is wrong. And let us follow what God demands of us. We not only complicate the process of Christian growth and church planting and spiritual activity when we focus in on those things that are extra biblical, but we also complicate the process of obedience. We've add, added to it. We are told to make disciples, Matthew chapter 28. This is discipleship, or rather, this is evangelism. This is for us to go out and make disciples, to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to those who are lost. If you noticed, and I didn't highlight him at the time, but there was a, an individual at the back of the room, and he was wearing a blue and white striped shirt in the video that I just showed a moment ago. In that, uh, in that short video, this man who's sitting in the back was our bus driver for the 10 days that I was in Ecuador. The, that man came to know Christ as Savior after 18 years of his wife's prayers and the missionaries' prayers for him. And it was through COVID that he suddenly began to pay attention to the online devotions that the missionary was doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And at the end of COVID, he began to realize his need for Christ. And he came to Christ as Savior. His son came to know Christ as Savior. His son's wife came to know Christ as Savior. His other son came to know Christ as Savior. And his daughter came to know Christ as Savior. All since COVID. That is obedience to the first command. Go and make disciples. The second is to train them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. This is discipleship. This is what it takes from taking a, a new believer to grow in the things of Christ. And that means we avoid all of the complicated materials. You teach them the word of God. We complicate it. We say that discipleship is some sort of difficult thing. Do life on life ministry. When you walk, they walk. When you share Christ, they share Christ. They hear it proclaimed. This is demonstrated by those that were in the video, but it should be demonstrated by us as well. That's not the call of a missionary. That's the call of a Christian. If you know Christ as Savior, you will be judged on those two commandments. You will be judged on those two. It's not a you might be, or if your calling fit that, you will be. No, that is the instruction given to the church. And so therefore, you and I must avoid uh, being lethargic. 
there is, a, there is the ability within us to just kind of exist. Paul focuses on defining in these transitionary verses. Verses 1 and 2 are transitionary. Moving from chapter 3 to what he's about to say in verse 3 of chapter 4 and following... Paul is in this transitionary walk, but he's or transitionary verses, but he's focusing on the walk of the believer, a walk that ought to please God. Do you want to please God? That should be an amen. <laughs> we should desire anxiously to stand before our Savior and to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That is what we should be about. And if you want to be about that, you'll avoid the self-help section in Christian bookstores. And you will dig your nose into the pages of the Word of God to understand what it is that God finds pleasing. It doesn't matter what man finds pleasing. It matters what God finds pleasing. The church at Thessalonica had had amazing start. Remember, they are, are known. They are well known. Just like the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica is well known. They had an amazing start. They sprang to life in a short period of time, even while experiencing persecution and they had endured through that persecution. They had remained strong through it. And now months down the road, Paul reminds them that you're not done yet. And if Paul had a message for us, it would be you're not done yet. You have not yet crossed the finish line. The church in Thessalonica and the church in Byron Center must not settle for a lethargic Christianity. We can't afford it. We don't have time for a lethargic Christianity. Every single chapter in the book of 1 Thessalonians ends with a look to the future. We already know this because we've gone through three of them. If Paul's intentionality to point us to the future is so evident within the book, we must understand what Paul is getting at. If our walk is lethargic, if our walk is slow because of circumstances, are we faithful to the call that we have been called to? When the church becomes complacent in the things that matter most to the Lord, she will become the most concerned with things that matter most to our sinful flesh. And that's what Paul is calling them out of. When the church is, is complacent with what God wants, we become concerned with the things that we want. And couldn't that describe the American church today? Unfortunately, it may describe our own walk in Christ. But notice again what Paul says, because Paul is Paul's addressing this, and he's going to call us to things that are going to make us squirm in our seats. They ought to make us squirm in our seats if we're engaged in them. But notice what he says again in the middle of verse 1. He says that as you received from us, that is the message that you received from the Lord Jesus, that you've received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. And he's going to move through in verses 3 and following. He's going to deal with sexual immorality. He's going to be dealing with lusts. He's going to be dealing with impurities, calling us to holiness. That's where we head next week, Lord willing. But as he's doing that, he's saying, I want you to abound more and more. It's important that we understand that Paul is not chastising this church. He's not saying, I have this against you. He's going to write that to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. He's going to tell them why, as we're going to take the Lord's table in just a few moments, he's telling them why there are those who are sick and dying in their midst. He's reminding them of their sin. But Paul is not having to do that in Thessalonica. He's saying, you're already there, but I want you to abound more. The urging of spiritual authority from the apostle is to push believers toward the finish line of spiritual maturity. We need to be pushed towards that finish line. Those of you who run marathons, you know that there is a wall that you hit in the process of running that marathon. You can do a lot of training and you can be prepared and, and you reach that wall. And if you don't push through that wall, you're not going to make it to the finish line. We have to push through. For the Christian journey, there may be multiple walls that we have to push through. Paul's desire is for them to have spiritual maturity, to have them walk in a manner that pleases the Lord, and to abound in that more and more, to be increasing in that. Sometimes we think that the walk ends when we say, wow, I've pleased the Lord today. Paul says abound more and more. Don't let that immature 
abounding, that immature level of pleasing the Lord, which is good and noble, but get to the next level and get to the next level and get to the next level. Believers, do not be so full of yourself that you mistakenly believe that you've made it. Because you haven't made it. None of us have. Or that your ideas are the right ideas. Or that your plans are God's plans. Because until God's plans are your plans, and your walk is pleasing to the Lord, you must press on. Your plans are not God's plans. It better be God's plans or your plans. And you must continue to walk in a manner that is pleasing. You need to press on, abounding and pleasing the Lord more and more. Interestingly, it would seem that this is what Paul deems as success in the Christian journey. is an abounding walk in faithfulness. That's not very flashy. That doesn't sell very many books. That doesn't write very many podcasts. Faithful, trudging obedience. It is also fascinating that you don't see Paul speak of numbers in the church. He doesn't say, grow a ministry as large as you can grow it. You don't see Paul saying, uh, reach out and, and just bring people in from the, from the community in Thessalonica and bring them to be part of the church. Paul doesn't say that. It's important that you and I understand that the Lord is not concerned with how impressed you are of your own capabilities. The Lord is not concerned with what impresses you. He is pleased by your obedience to him. He is pleased by your obedience to him. If you capture nothing from these transitionary verses, capture that truth. God is not impressed with your capabilities. But he is pleased with your obedience. The language of this text would indicate again that Paul is not rebuking these believers. He's not rebuking them. He's not uh, disciplining them. He says, just as you are doing. So Paul is not trying to call out disobedience, but rather to encourage them to continue in a pattern of growth and to abound more and more and more and more. This is one of the things that stood out from the group that I've just shown to you. The last two nights that I was in Ecuador, we spent, spent time going around and listening to the missionaries. As board members of BMW, we asked them, what is your favorite part of being a missionary? The answers were varied. The answers were revealing. One missionary said, he related a story. He's a missionary from the Colorado Springs area, and he related a story of going to language school, storing all of their stuff in a storage unit, receiving a phone call about three months later from the director or the owner of the storage unit and said, we need you to come back because you have to catalog everything that remains. We had a fire at the storage unit and certain storage units were destroyed and yours was one of those that's received damage. So he sent a pastor friend over to go and view the damage that had been done. Everything that this young family had brought to the storage unit was utterly destroyed. They're in language school, their support's been raised, and they're headed to Argentina. And everything is gone. He said, that's my favorite part of being a missionary. <laughs> so I pressed. I'm like, uh, why? And he said, because I learned what it meant to be dependent upon God for everything. Not only did they lose at that time, People gave generously as the needs were announced. Everything arrives in South America, and in South America, half of their stuff is destroyed in a fire again. And the other half was dumped off the front of a forklift, and much of it was damaged. And he said, and I praise God to learn dependence on God again. God is not impressed by your capacities or your capabilities. He's pleased with your obedience. And Paul is pushing this. So what does it mean to please him? What does it mean to please him? We go on to applied knowledge. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, verse 2. 
applied knowledge and uh, specifically applying the instruction that we get. So it's not just knowledge, it's specific to instruction. Verse 2 says this, for we know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ, or rather you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul is going to re-preach what he's already instructed them. He's going to start again and proclaim what he's already proclaimed to them. Once they've come to know Christ the Savior, Paul has preached on the issues of sanctification, uh, abstaining from sexual immorality, honoring the Lord in your body, pursuing holiness and honor. He's going to preach that again. And he's going to retell them these things. He's told them already and he's going to tell them again. And bear with me because as we look into this one simple statement in verse 2, we need to unpack it. First, the messages of Paul were not contrived of lessons learned in a movie or taught to him by a friend, didn't come from a TikTok video, wasn't from a good book or a song he learned. This was deep and intentional message from the Lord, and that was the only thing that Paul deemed as valuable to instruct to the church at Thessalonica. He taught them the Word of God. The instructions came through the Lord Jesus. Paul was not proclaiming his own ideologies. He's not saying, I'm in the process of writing a book and I want to teach you this. He said, this is the word of God. This is obedience. And that is what God is concerned with. Second, that's the first part of it. Second, the preaching of God's word came with the expectation that the hearers would respond. That the hearers would respond. It is this truth, built upon the first truth, that makes the difference. We do not obey Christ because of some religious zeal to appease him. We obey Christ because he first loved us. And he demonstrated that love for us when he purchased us by the shedding of his own blood. So let us endeavor to never cheapen or water down or allow preaching or spiritual uh, preaching or spiritual teaching to be nothing more than a moral lesson or a pithy testimony of spiritual piety. Let us be those who hold fast to what Scripture says, because that is all that will matter on the day of judgment. Nothing else does. You can gather crowds. Anybody can gather a crowd. You can appeal to the masses. You can write bestsellers. You can have the most uh, visited TikTok channel or YouTube channel in the world. Your podcast can have hundreds of thousands of listeners. But none of that matters if it's from your own capacities or some pithy religious ideology. Let us endeavor to never cheapen or water down or to allow preaching and spiritual teaching to be nothing more than a moral lesson or pithy testimony of spiritual piety. Because you and I must be armed for battle. You and I must be armed for battle. Paul's going to get into this, and he's going to spend time here in just a moment, but the Christian's marching orders are obligatory. We're obligated to do them because they come from the Lord. Notice again, verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This knowledge is knowledge that's applied. You know what to do. It's fascinating to me because a lot of Christians will say, well, well, I don't know. I, I know we're supposed to be reaching out to the lost, but I don't know how to do that. Or they'll say, I know that we're commanded to discipleship, but no one's ever told me how. Isn't it fascinating that Paul says, you already know this? He says, you know. And you know that those are excuses. You're just looking for a reason not to do it. My children do this when it's time, not so much anymore as they've grown up, but when they were smaller, uh, they would say, well, I don't, I, I don't know how to take out the trash. Oh, yeah? 
because it's not that complicated. Or, I don't know, I don't know how to vacuum the floor. <laughs> oh, yeah? It's not that complicated. And there is that required showing again. But there is also the responsibility to obey. And that is what Paul is calling us to. In the coming verses, Paul will provide a list of the orders, a list of the marching orders for us. And they serve as a Christian warrior's manual for fighting the spiritual battles ahead. You want to be successful in following the things of Christ, you will flee sexual immorality in every single form. You will pursue holiness at every single turn. You will follow after the instructions of the Lord in reaching the lost for the sake of Christ. Boy, I was challenged on that issue as I sat in a market in Quito, Ecuador, just a few days ago. It was the last day that I had in Ecuador, and I'm sitting there, and I've, I've purchased the last of the little souvenirs that I could pack in my two carry-on bags, uh, which wasn't much. I, those things were filled to the brim. And so I finished purchasing the last little things, and I'm contemplating in the process, how am I going to get these last few items in? And, and one of the missionaries from Mexico, he's in Guadalajara, he had bought a flute in one of the shops around, and he uses his guitar. He'll ride the city buses throughout Guadalajara and just strum and sing Christian hymns and then use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. And so he bought the flute to accompany that as the next level. But the flute's a little different. It's, it's a tube that's about 12 to 15 inches long, and, and it has just a, about an inch and a half mouthpiece to it that's just hollow with a little slit cut in it. And it sounds somewhat like a recorder, if you remember those from your childhood days when you were in the first music classes you attended. And it sounds similar to that, but with a, a little bit better pitch than that, and so he was trying to figure out how to play it because you have to blow the air just right to get it through the little slot that's in the mouthpiece and to get some of it to go down the tube so that you can change the notes. And a guy comes over and he says, let me show you in Spanish, let me show you how to play that flute. Within two minutes, Marco was sharing the gospel with the guy who had come over to instruct him. That was challenging to my own heart because I sat on an airplane to fly back from Quito to Atlanta next to a climber, a mountain climber, who was climbing one of the, climbing the highest peak in Ecuador, which is over 20,000 feet in elevation. Well, I had just climbed, I thought I was pretty special climbing a 14er, Colorado. And so I'm, I'm asking her all these questions and we're talking it took me a full 30 minutes to get to the gospel. We must be those who are quick because that's what we're demanded to do, to be found faithful in obedience. Paul is going to give us the marching order. Sometimes you can get to the gospel quickly, sometimes you can't, but we must be those who are diligent in understanding the Christian warrior's manual. The military has manuals for proper engagement with the enemy. There's a lot of them, and some of them are kind of hard to purchase. These manuals become the standard operation instructions. If you're in the military, you follow the manual. You do what the manual says in hand-to-hand -hand combat. You do what the manual says in tactics. You follow the instructions. If they're not followed, lives are potentially unnecessarily lost. The cost of disregarding the manual is devastating. And it is in the Christian journey as well. Do not disregard the manual. The believer who ventures in his own or her own path is at risk and often will lead others astray with them. And so Paul is saying, press on to maturity. Press forward. One last illustration this morning. Charles Willoughby, our missionary Dan Willoughby's father, was a missionary in Columbia and Dan was off to boarding school in these events. Tim, my interpreter, who was interpreting for me through the BMW conference, was at home. He's a six, seven-year-old boy 
when Charles, missionary to Columbia, faced an angry mob that attacked a home where they'd been hosting a Bible study. Charles, the, the gate was, was up, and I'm not going to give you all the details because I want to get to what Charles says. You'll have to read it. You can read it in Standing Tall, or Tall for God is the title of the book by Hillis. You can read it in the account of that book. Charles uh, went to help barricade and hold the gate up that was being hacked down by axes as they were after killing the missionary. The door didn't the door to the gate no longer held and Charles was stepping back when uh, an individual approached him with his axe in his hand and swung it and struck him in the head with the back of the axe not realizing thinking that it was with the head of the axe the front of the axe but hit him in the head the back of the axe and knocked Charles unconscious the the individual who had swung the axe steps out and he says, I have killed him. I've killed the missionary. I've killed the pastor. And the crowd begins to chant, we've killed him. We've killed him. And then Charles begins to stir inside and they notice that he stirs. And so they begin to pelt rocks and say, by saying, he's not dead. He's not dead. Another man walks in, points a pistol at the head of Charles And says, I'm going to kill you. Instead of pulling the trigger, he kicks him, he hits him, and he pistol whips him and leaves him for dead. All because Charles and his young family were in this small town of Malaga, Colombia, only to share the gospel. After this encounter, Charles writes this, and this is what I want to focus on. Charles writes this. He says, eternity has become more real and death less fearsome because of the time spent, because, because of the time I spent in Malaga. Interestingly, isn't it the way of God that he would mix the chemistry of our experiences into meaningfulness? Maybe I'm a coward. But I'm afraid to live, or I'm afraid to try and live for anything less than his glory. And maybe I'm selfish, but I do not want anything less than his will accomplished in me. We have the great joy. Charles is with the Lord today, but we have the great joy of supporting his son, Dan, in missions. We support them as they are serving faithfully in Germany. But may we learn lessons from Charles Willoughby. May we be those who will testify with him. Maybe I'm a coward, but I'm afraid to try and live for anything less than the glory of God. And maybe I'm selfish, but I do not want anything less than his will accomplished in me. May that be our prayer request. Beloved, we have the great and awesome opportunity this morning to participate in the Lord's table together. And so I'm going to close this time in the Word of God, and then we're going to transition briefly and quickly into on the celebration of the Lord's table. So let us ask the Lord's blessing as we close this portion in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you as a people who, is, who are extremely needy, a people who have often believed we have arrived when indeed we must be called and urged, asked in a brotherly way and urged with the spiritual authority of the Word of God to press on. Lord, cause us to be those who won't overcomplicate the matters by our own fleshly, finite, sinful beings, but rather that we would be those who are diligent, humble, in doing what you have called us to do. Lord, I praise you for the example of Paul to the Thessalonian believers and the example that they serve to us as they sought to follow faithfully after you. Lord, we glorify you. We praise you and we thank you for what you have provided for us in Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross. Lord, I pray that these things would be that which we do not allow to pass by without constant contemplation and appreciation and glorification, the one who has provided it for us. So, Lord, as we begin to transition towards this element in our service, we ask your name to be glorified in all that we do and say today. 
or Jew are those that capture our imagination as we have heard in Spanish, Behold Our God, and we look again to singing it in a few moments. We want to be those who truly contemplate what it means to be in awe of you and then to obey you. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor in all of these things. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.